Hello and welcome to History for Weirdos. We're your hosts, Andrew and Stephanie. And each week, we're going to take you on a journey into the strange, obscure, and relentlessly entertaining corners of human history. Now listen up, friends, because it's about to get weird. Episode 74 of History for Weirdos. And we're glad to be back, especially with the good news. Yes, if you follow us on Instagram, then you already know we've hit a million downloads. Yes! That's incredible, and that's thanks to you all. Yeah, I can't believe like it's actually happened. I mean, when we first set off to do the History for Weirdos podcast, I don't even think that was like in my wildest imagination like something that we could ever achieve. No, not at all. I remember um, listening to a podcast that someone had with their best friend and thinking to myself, oh, I want to have a podcast with my best friend and that just happens to be you. And that was like the most I thought about it. I never (laughs) thought we'd have like a million downloads. Yeah, me neither. I mean, I remember like just at one point, I think in the beginning is like, if we have like more than 10 people listening to this, then I'm really stoked. Mm -hmm. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And again, I said, if you follow us on Instagram, you already know because we took some photos to commemorate and celebrate this milestone. So if you don't follow us on Instagram, you could go check that out at History for Weirdos. And before Andrew gets into his um, episode for this week, I wanted to share a little bit about the location where we took those photos. So tell me, babe, you found this, right? Yeah. Originally? I was familiar with the house, like I had driven by it, but you were looking for cool historic sites in LA. Yeah, I was just Google searching and I found a lot, Um, but I was like, oh, you need a permit to be here. Yes. Like this just looks too inaccessible, like way too far, you know, and things like that. And I saw this house and I was like, oh my God, this is, this looks like it's from a set. It's, but it's a real residential house. And then I know a little bit about it, but I don't want to steal your thunder. So you go into it. Well, the house is called the Spadina House, or it's also known as the Witch's House. Yes. Which is a storybook style house in Beverly Hills. And, And like Andrew said, it is a personal residence, but looking at the house, you would never guess. Right. And that's because you are totally right. It used to be, um, a movie set prop, I guess, like a prop house. Yeah. It was in Culver City, which is closer to where we are. Mm-hmm. In 1920 or 1921, I think it said it was built. And it was used for silent films. It's so cool. I know. Including a Hansel and Gretel film. Which totally fits the vibe. It fits the vibe. It looks like a witch in a Hansel and Gretel type story's house. Yeah. And also, like, let's point out the fact that that house is over 100 years old now. It's over 100 years old. <laughs> it's yeah. pretty cool. I don't know how... So, in 1934, they put it on a truck and moved it to Beverly Hills. It's so Like, how wild. did they do that? Like, you don't do that anymore. Like, you oh, know, sometimes you see them, like, on the highway, like, those, like, really, you know, dilapidated houses, but, like, every blue moon. Mm, I've never seen that, actually. Yeah, I've, I haven't seen it in over 10 years, at least. Can you imagine driving in LA and you see, like, a witch's house? In a truck. To be honest, that wouldn't surprise me that much. That's true. (laughs) It's LA after all. That's a fair point. So ever since it was moved to Beverly Hills, it Mm. actually has served as a private residence. So a family 
called the Spadina family originally purchased the house, which is where it gets its name. So it had the ownership of the Spadina family, and then it looks like they sold that house to another family, I think in the 60s, mm-hmm. was my understanding. And then after that family, I don't know what happened, but the house went into disarray, which was such a shame because, as you can imagine, this the witch's house was an iconic spot um, in the 70s and 80s for Halloween. Yes, and people have already messaged us saying, like, oh, I went trick-or-treating at that house. Yep, I grew up trick-or-treating there. I remember that house from when I was a kid, which is so cool. So then by the 90s, it was just totally, like, overgrown with plants, and there was flooding because the house has a little moat outside of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the moat had flooded, and all of this stuff happened. And a real estate, a real realtor, excuse me, real estate agent, I guess, He grew up in Beverly Hills and he saw that people were planning to buy the house and just knock it down. And he didn't want that to happen. So he bought the house himself. What is his name? Hold on. I have it in my notes. Yeah. What a champ, by the way. Absolutely. Um, His name was Michael Lebow. He purchased it and then it took him 15 years to restore it. Oh my God. Talk about a passion project. And I'm so glad he did because it is such a like pleasure to go and just look at it it feels like you're in disneyland for a second oh yeah and um i saw an interview that he did i was just kind of like reading up on the house and he said that on halloween if he looks outside his window there's thousands of people outside the house i could imagine that he said he has to buy a lot of candy (laughs) (laughs) he even hires private security to help him oh my god crowd control and with the candy handing out (laughs) i don't blame him yeah, oh, and it's yeah. also a very prime location because it's like right off that main street, whatever that is, like whatever that street name is. Yeah, right in Beverly Hills. It's close to a lot of really like cool, iconic spots. Yeah. Um, so that's just a little quick rundown on the Spadina house. You can look up photos of the inside of the house as well. So cool. He, again, um, the owner, he spent a lot of money to make the inside also look kind of like Tim Burton meets Disney house. Oh my God. That sounds so insane. Yes. And then we have our photos from our very professional photo shoot that my 18 year old brother did with us (laughs) on Instagram. So you can go check those out there. Well, thank you for regaling us with this, like a little mini sode before the regular episode. Exactly. You're welcome. And now Andrew, tell us what is the story you have for us this week? Well, I just want to preface this. It's going to be a little bit different than, you know, an early 20th century house. Mm -hmm. It's not a witch house story? It is not a witch house story. Okay. Uh, This involves, like, geopolitics, so slightly different. Ooh. Slightly different. This sounds like a big deal. So I'm going to preface this episode by saying that the United States and the British Empire during the 18th and 19th centuries were no strangers to conflict with one another. Mm. So, of course... There was, you know, the American War for Independence, a.k.a. our Revolutionary War, and the War of 1812. I really hope, dear listeners, that you know what those two events are, Mm because they're they're pretty important. Um, If you don't, this is a good time to pause, pull out Wikipedia, and then you can join us. Yes, exactly. (laughs) But I want to skip ahead a little bit and talk about a brief conflict in 1859 that had international consequences. Guess what brought about all this conflict? Well, who's the conflict between? The United States and Great Britain. Okay. Um, Who brought about it? I don't know. Probably some old dude. It's not a who. It's actually a what. And it was a dead pig. (gasps) 
Oh, okay. But yes, like a singular dead pig, not just like a, a like bunch the of them. concept of dead pigs. Yeah, not not that just like a single dead pig, one okay. of them. I mean, and sometimes just reality is truly stranger than fiction. Tell us more. I'm so, interested to learn. But before we get into the incident, I feel like I have to do a little backstory because it will really tie everything in together. And and without further ado, let's get into it, shall we? Mm-hmm. So in the first half of the 19th century, there were really important treaties signed that involved the United States, Great Britain, France, Spain, later Mexico, and Russia. Okay. So the most famous of these treaties was undoubtedly the Louisiana Purchase in 1803 between the French Republic and the fledgling American Republic. Mm -hmm. And this greatly expanded the territorial claim of the United States. And an unintended consequence of this, interestingly enough, was that it later indirectly led to another acquisition the U.S. would make. 1819 comes around and the Spanish Empire ceded Florida to the United States Mm -hmm. under the Adams onus treaty but interestingly this was only in effect for around six months after it was put into effect you know two years later uh, why mm-hmm. because mexico declared independence against spain and it was recognized oh okay yeah so it was really no longer spain's to give yeah that makes sense and you know funny turn of events but over the next decade or so the result would stay the same and florida would remain in american hands mm-hmm. and in fact the treaty of limits between the united states and mexico would be the first agreement between the two new countries oh okay yeah it's kind of interesting yeah so what a lot of people don't know is that russia had territorial claims in north america i've never heard that before what are you serious yeah so, okay, I was going to say weirdos, congrats, if you didn't know this, con- or if you did know this, then congratulations, but if you didn't, that's okay, because, you know, I barely remember learning about this in school. Is it Nova Scotia? No. <laughs> no. All the Canadian weirdos are upset now. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, what? Okay, tell us, what, what claims did Russia have? What are you talking about? Well, they claimed the Pacific Northwest, specifically uh, one of our states... Alaska. What? Yeah. Alaska okay. was Russian territory. I don't remember this at all. Are you even a, a weirdo, a history weirdo? <laughs> well, I'm here to learn like the other weirdos. You know what? That's a great retort. Okay, fair enough. So, <laughs> anyway, I've totally lost my train of thought. Okay, here we go. So the Russians by this point really only like wanted Alaska. <laughs> Because, you know, uh, they had more territory than that. But it was just too much to control. It was like a, a ton of desolate land. And they were just like, no, I, I'm over this. So, I'll just take Alaska. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they're like, okay, you know what? The two great powers, or, you know, great powers, the two powers that they kind of had to contend with, the United States and Britain, they'll, they're like, we'll deal with them. First treaty signed was, was with the U.S. in 1824 and was very creatively named the Russo-American Treaty of 1824. That's kind of actually ringing a bell now, but I don't know if I'm just trying to convince myself that it rings a bell. I think you're trying to convince yourself. Well. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> so signed in St. Petersburg, it established the southern border of their claims in the Pacific Northwest to be at the 54 degrees 40 uh, minute north parallel. 
I know that's really, it's basically in latitude and longitude, you do like degrees and then minutes. I remember that from school. I, okay. I do remember that. Okay, good. <laughs> looking at the globe and looking at the little lines. And sometimes mm-hmm. people just abbreviated it, especially in the past when this was like a really big deal, which is just 5440. Mm-hmm. So in present day, it's actually the southern border of Alaska's panhandle. So it's still kind of in effect. So all fine and dandy, right? Like, you know, Russia figured it out. Well, not exactly. Because the following year, the Russians signed a treaty with Great Britain. Okay. And want to take a guess what that treaty was called? Was it like the Russo-Britain-O treaty? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god. That's like surprisingly not that far off. It was the Anglo-Russian Treaty of 1825. I was really close. (laughs) Britain-O. Oh my god. (laughs) That's too good. So, and to be fair, though, sometimes it is called the St. Petersburg Treaty of 1825. I know. Very interesting. But it's at this juncture where we start to get a little bit of geopolitical confusion going on. You see, the Russian delegation said essentially the same thing to the British as they did to the Americans. They were like, everything south of the 5440 was non-Russian and belonged to the Brits or Americans or whomever. They didn't really care. Mm-hmm. Though, I do want to point out that although their territory did not go farther south than that, their economic interests still had to be respected according to these treaties. Not really important for this, but still, I just want to be holistic. And um, this was in, especially in regards to the fur trade. So regardless, though, this left the United States and Great Britain in kind of an awkward spot. You know, awkward turtle. Mm-hmm. So... What was never in question was that the U.S. always had dominion over the area south of the 49th parallel and east of the Continental Divide, which is kind of like the Rocky Mountains and a couple other geographical designations. So Mexico held land south of the 42nd parallel, which is the modern-day border between California and Oregon. Mm -hmm. But what of the area north of Mexico's claim and south of Russia's in the Pacific Northwest? Big oof. Mm Mm-hmm. Because, you know, we're going to post a picture of it on Instagram. You know, shameless plug here. Follow us on Instagram. Just so you guys know what we're talking about. Because I know with geography, even me, like, and I'm really into geography. Like, sometimes things just get, like, too wrapped up in my head. And I don't know what people are talking about. Mm -hmm. But the main point here is that the area just between the 42nd parallel and the the 54 degree 40 minute parallel was completely in dispute. Mm-hmm. The Americans and the English had even had different names for this area. The U.S. called it Oregon Country, whereas Great Britain called it the Columbia District. Oh, okay. Ironic, though, that they called it the Columbia District because the U.S. capital is the District of Columbia. Mm-hmm. Anyways, the biggest irony, though, of this all is that the originally proposed border, su- originally suggested by an American, Albert Gallatin, along the 49th parallel is more or less what is in effect today between the United States and Canada. Oh. Yeah, so there could have been decades of just back and forth that didn't need to happen. That sounds like government, though. That sounds, yeah, that just sounds like governments. You know, there is some weird stuff going on in the northwestern corner of the U.S. due to the geographical state of Washington. Mm-hmm. But anyways, it doesn't matter. For decades, there was postulating back and forth on who actually owned the area and if, in effect... You know, there was some sort of, like, joint occupation, more or less. It was kind of semi-lawless, semi-like, both people were just, or both governments were just like, I'm on it. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to skip to the good port. Because, like, a lot of, like, the nuances of the back and forth were just uh, honestly too boring to recount. Mm-hmm. So, the presidential election of 1844. 
This was super contentious election as there were significant things going on at this point. So first of all, the U.S. is only about 16 years away from full-blown civil war. Mm -hmm. And slavery was the hot-button issue. Mm -hmm. In addition to that, though, the diplomatic annexation of Texas was generally favored because this was what Texas had or had seceded from or declared independence from Mexico and their their own um, country at this point. Um, And they wanted to be part of the U.S., and that was generally favored, but it was complicated by the issue of slavery. So was the state to be admitted as a slave state or a free state? And that was really contentious during this time in history. Yeah, and I remember learning about this. Spoilers, Texas was admitted as a slave state in the following year. Mm-hmm. And lastly, though, but still very important, there was the looming issue of Oregon country. So interestingly, as the election neared, the issue... This issue, especially the issue of like Oregon country, became more of a hot bun a topic for Americans than even that of Texas. Oh, okay. Yeah. In fact, the Democratic Party's official stance at their national convention was this, and I quote, that our title to the whole of the territory of Oregon is clear and unquestionable, that no portion of the same ought to be ceded to England or any other power, and that the reoccupation of Oregon and the reannexation of Texas at the earliest practical period, are great American measures. So interesting to see what was, um, where our values were as a country at that time. Yes, exactly. And and this, the message was very clear. Like, Mm -hmm. Texas and all of Oregon country belong to the U.S., period. Right. Um, Expansion, really asserting ourselves as a power. Mm Mm-hmm. And from a strategic standpoint, their messaging was actually quite brilliant as they unified both sides of their party, both the proponents and opponents of slavery, to like in a move of expansionism. Mm-hmm. And their strategy worked as the Democratic candidate James K. Polk won the election that year over, I believe it was a Whig, um, Henry Clay. So fun fact, a couple years later, actually during 1846, there was a saying that would be said widely throughout the U.S., 5440 or fight, you know, referencing mm. that 54 de- degree, 40 minute north. Yeah. Parallel. And, you know, this was in line with the Democratic position, essentially saying that the U.S. would accept the land south of the 5440 or would fight for it. Mm-hmm. You know, interestingly, historians have noted that the sentiment was directed just as much at the Southern aristocracy as the British because Northerners wanted a free state to right. even out the discrepancy between you know the free states and slave states after the admission of texas wow yeah so luckily for everyone however cooler heads ended up prevailing a majority of both sides just did not want war and the oregon uh, treaty was signed on june 15th 1846 and ratified by the u.s senate three days later which established the 49th parallel as the border between the two countries Mm -hmm. literally like the original proposition Mm -hmm. like 30 years prior (laughs) And I should mention that Polk, by the way, has gone down in American history as one of the worst presidents, just FYI, because like, you know, he just absolutely did. I mean, he only stoked the flames and didn't like didn't even remotely see the the looming threat of, you know, secession and civil war coming. Yeah. So this is the end of hostilities and awkwardness, right? You would hope so. You'd hope so, but absolutely not. It is is definitely not. Before we get to the actual like pinnacle of our tale, I, I want to point out a few things in how the Americans and British saw the Oregon country territory. Okay. 
So we'll start with the U.S. as has already been answered a little bit. And you actually kind of touched on it. Mm-hmm. Americans generally viewed Oregon country as a place to be settled and for U.S. citizens to expand American influence. And it, we wouldn't have the Oregon Trail game. Exactly. I think that's the most <laughs> important thing in this conversation. What would we have done as fifth graders? Right. I was going to say, like, as fifth graders, like, <laughs> I mean, going into, like, your computer lab or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's funny because I still, I mean, I, I still think of the state of Oregon and I do think of um, American settlers and the Oregon Trail and, like, the <laughs> caravans and trying to not die of disease on your way there. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I know. That was still one of my favorite video games, I think, growing up. Yes, definitely. So I guess it's accurate representation of what people saw it as. Like, oh, it's this new land to go and be settled. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And this was, again, kind of in line with the idea of Manifest Destiny, expanding the American dominion from, you know, coast to coast. Mm -hmm. And I will say it is really interesting that this underlying collective consciousness, I guess, of expansionism did, in fact, utilize a very ancient thought practice, like, i.e. the idea of manifesting. Yeah. I think it's very strange, very interesting concept. But anyways, that's just my musing. So this idea is in stark contrast to the role the Brits saw in their role, like, in this area. Theirs was very different. They view this as, like completely mercantilist in nature Mm -hmm. like business oriented they didn't really want permanent settlements um rather they were just drawn there solely by their economic interests Mm. their the british presence was in fact very singular in their mission and identity uh they were there to trade furs by way of the hudson's bay company and the royal navy was simply there just to protect those interests like that's it wow not much more beyond that interesting yeah it's, it's very interesting. It seems impractical, though, having it be so far away from other parts of your empire, I guess. Yeah. Just kind of this island of space. I did see that um, there was a, a British uh, admiral who later remarked that, like, he wasn't really in favor of, like, occupation of this area mm-hmm. in general because, like, economic interests were dwindling. Mm-hmm. So... And it's also obviously just such a shame that we... Either side was perceiving this as like something for the taking when obviously there were already people yeah. who had been living there for thousands of years. Yeah, they're and like, that's just being totally disregarded in this oh, uh, absolutely. international debate. Oh, definitely. So with this kind of in mind though, like the you know, the different thought practices, it's easy to see how hostilities could easily arise between the two powers given their fundamentally different cultural views and mm-hmm. their respective roles in the re- the region. Big egos. Huge egos. Huge. (laughs) So now, funny enough, there was still some ambiguity uh, with the border situation. This time, however, the only, you know, quote-unquote land that was in dispute was actually in the form of a few islands that were just south of the 49th parallel between Vancouver Island to the west, owned by the Brits, and the mainland, U.S., to the east. Okay. And again, I mentioned this earlier, there's just that weird kind of geography, like in the the sound of Seattle. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and the channels like that are right above it. Yeah. It's just just very strange. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I'll post a picture of it on Instagram because it's very confusing. Long story short, though, between 1856 and 1857, there was a full-blown commission between the United States and Great Britain to determine who actually owned these islands. Very important question. Very important <laughs> question. 
And literally, like, during this, like, year and a half thing, nothing was solved. Oh, my god! <laughs> nothing was solved. They're so annoying. The most important island, you know, being San Juan Island itself, was very lightly populated. So for the time being, there was just kind of this arrangement that both countries seemed fine with. Um, you know, that, like, they would both kind of oversee it and no one would really, they would sweep it under the rug kind of thing. They were like, in the meantime, we'll just share... Basically. More or less, yeah. Okay. Like unofficially. Mm-hmm. Because they both claimed, they were like, oh, it's, the Brits it's were mine. like, it's mine. And the Americans are like, no, it's mine. And then they're just like, well, okay. We're not going to actively kick you out though, even though I know it's mine. Exactly. Okay. There were some like kind of hilarious exceptions. Like one such being that um, a local American magistrate in the newly formed Washington Territory tried to collect taxes from the Hudson's Bay Company who had started a sheep farm on San Juan Island named Bellevue. Mm-hmm. And the Hudson's Bay Company presumably told, you know, the tax collector to kick rocks. And so that guy came back, like, on the island, like, at midnight with a bunch of people, uh, Americans, to hold an auction on, like, the sheep and rams that were part <gasps> of the farm. Oh, to, like, get the taxes? <laughs> yeah, basically, to, like, a sheep yeah. in a way. And hilarity ensued as both the boats that they brought were just too small to carry all the livestock no! back. No! So they're trying to carry all these sheep on these tiny boats? Yeah. And, okay, it gets so blown out of proportion that eventually the, the Secretary of State at the time, William Marcy, like, heard about it. And he had to write a very strongly worded letter back to the officials in Washington to just knock it off. Like, give the... Let it go. Yeah, let it go. Give the Hudson's Bay Company back their sheep. They're like, <laughs> look, we know we're claiming it, but they're claiming it too. It's just not worth it. Just stop giving me a headache. Don't start a fight over these sheep. <laughs> exactly. Okay. It's like, it's really not worth it. And so now, without further ado, though, we can get to our actual incident. Tell us. Okay. June 15th, 1859, exactly 13 years after the adoption of the Oregon Treaty, a pig watered onto the property of Lyman Cutler. Okay. So Cutler was one of about 25 Americans who had settled on San Juan Island by this time, and they were they more or less kind of lived in peace with the Brits on the island. I mean, there weren't that many of them, and it's kind of a big island, so... So this was all about to change, though, because of a pig. So Cutler found this pig eating some of his potatoes that he was growing. And since, well, this wasn't the first infraction that he's seen this pig eating his potatoes, Cutler shot the pig. Oh, yeah. poor little piggy. Well, as it happens, the pig belonged to an employee of the Hudson's Bay Company, an Irishman by the name of Charles Griffin. He also owned several other pigs that he just allowed to roam freely and... He was into free-range pigs. Yeah, he was Yeah, he was way ahead of his time. <laughs> yeah. So Cutler, you know, being the good neighbor, because again, they were on pretty good terms apparently, offered, you know, 10 bucks to sell their dispute, which is the equivalent of around $300 today. Oh, wow. That's a lot. Like, hey, dude, sorry I shot your pig. Here's 300 bucks. Yeah, more okay. or less. And Griffin, though, was unsatisfied with the offer, and he demanded $100, which is $3,000 in today's money. That's excessive. Yeah. So this color was like, nah, nah, man. This ain't flying. And he believed, like, because he's like, well, first of all, like, I was just being nice. Like, I didn't have to give you anything because the pig was trespassing on my land. Their altercation led to British authorities threatening to arrest Cutler, who then sought the aid of U.S. military intervention. 
Oh, wow. Yeah, so this escalated really quickly. So this isn't looking good, and it's all because of one damn pig. Yeah. So Captain George Pickett, who would be famous for his role at the Battle of Gettysburg a few years later, was dispatched to the island to help address the situation. Wow. He, along with 66 men, landed on the island and shortly took up their position on the south side of the island. So he made national headlines when he was quoted as saying, quote, we'll make a bunker hill out of it, end quote, which was in reference to a ferocious stand by the Continental Army way back during the Siege of Boston in 1775. (laughs) Of course, very equal situations here. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Like he's defending this person's honor because of a pig. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, declaring independence. Yeah, same thing. (laughs) Yeah, same thing. So, you know, safe to say he didn't exactly take a measured approach <laughs> in this situation. The British also responded by sending in troops under the command of Captain Jeffrey Hornby to counter any sort of aggression on the side of the U.S. And they took up residence on the north side of the island. Uh-oh. Yes. So by August 10th, 1859, 461 Americans with 14 cannons under Colonel Silas Casey were opposed by five British warships mounting 70 guns and carrying over 2,100 men. Oh my gosh. So Hornby was still in command on the British side, but was unwilling to take any sort of action until he heard word from Rear Admiral Robert (laughs) L. Baines, who was in command of the entire British Navy in the Pacific Theater. Oh my god. That's how far this escalated and, and so quickly so quick within months wow also you don't hear the name silas anymore no i was like that's a cool name yeah colonel silas casey yeah i like it i know right so the two sides were kind of at this like weird stalemate with neither side wanting to launch an attack and mm-hmm. just they were kind of just proverbial standing or staring down the barrels of each other's guns mm-hmm. like i guess literally in a way mm-hmm so when word reached London and Washington D.C., each leaders, like each country's leadership, was just absolutely horrified that what was going on. Like neither side wanted a war. Right. Like it was just not in their interest, over, especially over a stupid island. Oh. Like they didn't want to lose it, but they're like, "Well, I'm not going to start a war over this." Over a, a pig. Over a pig. That's yeah. really the root. That's really yeah. Obviously, the tensions are there for other reasons and recent history reasons for them too. But the pig is really... (laughs) Yeah, they're just like, no. (laughs) So, like, on the U.S. side, like, the nation was just more divided than ever before. You know, with hindsight, we now know the Civil War was just on the horizon, like, months away. President Buchanan sent um, General Winfield Scott to negotiate with the British governor of British Columbia, James Douglas, Mm -hmm. because he had actually done some negotiating with the British before, and it turned out well. So again, cooler heads prevailed, and each side agreed that the island would be jointly occupied with just like a token military force of no more than like 100 men. Mm-hmm. And pretty much immediately, the situation died down. I also didn't put in my notes, but on like the British side, mm-hmm. they didn't want war either because like a lot of their economic interests were tied to the United States. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, so like I know like Ireland had just had this big famine, so they, they imported a lot of crops from the United States to yeah. help with that. So... Over the next 12 years, this remained the status quo, even though the U.S. was embroiled in a civil war for, you know, a a good part of that. Yeah. So, in fact, relations were so good, like, at this time, like, on the island specifically, that 
British soldiers would actually party with Americans on the 4th of July. That's so cute. And vice versa on <laughs> Queen Victoria's birthday. That's sweet. So they have their own little mini culture. Yeah, they kind of have their own little like international community. That's really cute. Where they would go and, the you know. The pig have... ended up bringing them together, babe. It did, yes. <laughs> so ultimately, you know, the U.S. and the Brits signed yet again another treaty in 1871. So this being the Treaty of Washington, which resolved issues of, you know, the British sinking Union ships during the Civil War and established permanent positive relations actually with Canada, yep. who's a brand new country at this time. So also this, this established a commission led by a neutral third party being Kaiser Wilhelm oh I of Germany. <laughs> to arbitrate who would, you know, control the San Juan Islands. <laughs> like, I, the Kaiser of the German Empire. You you have to help us solve this fight. That started because of a pig. Yeah, because we will let it escalate very quickly. <laughs> yeah, and uh, entomologically... Am I even saying that word right? Definitely not. Definitely not. But where does the word Kaiser come from? Tell me. Caesar. Everyone knows that. There we go, baby. Gotta yeah. bring it back to ancient Rome. Every time. Every time. Every time. Also... I'm not going to go down nope. the rabbit hole. Nope, nope, nope. Okay. He ultimately, though, Kaiser Wilhelm I, ruled in favor of the United States on October 21st, 1872, ending a dispute that has essentially been going on now in, like, in one way or another for like 50 years. That's Like nuts. half a century. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Technically over. Yeah, I said over. Okay, good. So the British Royal Marines, you know, ended up vacating the island finally on November 25th, 1872. So just like a little over a month later, with the American forces doing the same July of 1874. So finally becoming a civilian settlement. And fun fact, so there are two areas on San Juan Island today that are now part of the National Park Service. Oh, yay! Yeah, the area where the British base was located in the north and... That's where one of them is, and the other one is in the south, where the American base was. I bet those are beautiful national parks. Yeah, I think they really are, actually. I saw some pictures. And, you know, what's interesting is every single day is part of a commemoration to international friendliness. The Union Jack is actually raised in the morning and lowered in the evening over the northern site. What? Yeah. That's so sweet. And it has nothing to do with, like, actual, you know, like, it's not like... They don't have any sort of claim to the territory whatsoever, right? It's not like an embassy or anything like that. It's literally just a commemoration. That's really sweet. Yeah, I really like that, actually. And to my knowledge, it's the only place in the U.S. that American officials raise the Union Jack for you know non-international relation purposes, but just because. That's a really good point. I wouldn't think anywhere else would. Yeah, and it's... Any yeah, other type of flag. Exactly. Like any other country's flag, it's just the Union Jack, from what I know. That's amazing. Yeah. And, and so see, the pig brought us together. The pig brought us together. And so, ladies and gentlemen, weirdos, that was the pig war of 1859. Is that what it's known as? That's the what pig it's, war? yeah, it's a bloodless war. But yeah, it's called the pig war. It was not bloodless. Oh, I guess there was a pig that died. <laughs> it started with blood. It started with blood. And, and potatoes. And then ended with like parting and Kaiser of Germany. <laughs> That's amazing. Like this, so yeah, one dude shot a pig and it ended with the Kaiser of the German Empire being like, okay, no. Being called is... in to help. Yeah. Tell me, where did you hear about this? I've never heard this story. So actually, a listener 
uh, gave me this idea. Oh, wow. A, a listener by the name of Maria. I'm not going to give her her last name, but she emailed me, and I was planning on doing a different episode this week, and I, and I read her email, and I was like, oh, my God. I, this is, I'm doing this episode. Well, thank you, Maria. Weirdos always have the best recommendations for episodes. Yeah. So you guys, thank you all. You guys are so awesome. And so my sources for this episode are the historylink.org, the National Park Service website, Historic UK, <laughs> the Canadian Encyclopedia, PBS, and, of course, Wikipedia. That's awesome. Thank yes. you so much, babe, for telling us the story of the pig war. The pig war, indeed. The not bloodless pig war. <laughs> I know. Thank you for <laughs> pointing out that a pig did indeed die. Yeah. You're welcome. I and wonder if the bacon was any good from that pig. Don't, babe. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> thank you so much for listening, weirdos. We will be back next week with a new episode, as always. Don't forget to check us out on Instagram, rate, review, and subscribe to help us keep growing. Yeah, and with that, weirdos, adios. Yeah.